night, the question was asked, are we finished? Several times, the question was asked, are we finished? I want to tell you, God is not finished. Some of you have come to this point and you're feeling, where's God in all of this? But I want to tell you, God isn't finished. This morning, as, as, as I was uh, reading and praying, I felt the Lord talk to me about those who have not yet received, those who perhaps, as Mark was talking about last night, were looking for significance in the wrong things. And then this morning, as we prayed round the back, Annie just prayed and she prayed for those leaders who again have come to this point that feels that they haven't received anything. And we thought maybe God is trying to say something. And I'm going to invite Deborah Lynn onto the platform now because Deborah Lynn came with a prophetic word that she believes is for the body. You know, and again, Mark reminded us that you know, if we're going to be a movement, we need to make room for the prophetic voice. So on the way up, on the first meeting, we're spiraling up to meet with God, yeah? And I just stood there in the worship and God said, just as you've spiraled up to meet with me, I'm spiraling down and my presence is coming down. And I could see this, this circle, yeah? I could just see this huge circle of light going up. And I could see a spiral forming in the circle of light of God's presence. And the circle was like Jacob's ladder. And the angels are coming down the circle. And they're spiraling around and they're coming down and they're coming to each person. They're coming to individuals. They're choosing the person to come with. Each one of them has a particular thing for that person. And people are receiving and people are getting things from God. People are having hurts healed and you know, all the things God does. And each angel has a commission from God for one person. And there's hundreds of them coming down. But I saw an angel go to a person and the angel could only get this far. Each angel was touching lips. But I saw this angel and it wasn't just for one person, but I saw one particular angel the angel could not make contact because the person had a barrier up. It's more than one person. I, I know it was one person. I've actually spoken with that person, but it's more than one person. So I believe God's word this morning is if you haven't yet allowed that thing that God wants to give you, take the barrier down. God is not finished. We've all been there, haven't we, where we feel as though everyone else is receiving, but not us. And God, by His Spirit, wants to do something this morning. In a moment, we're going to welcome Rich Villodis to the platform. And we know that what Rich is going to bring is going to add to that. It's, it's not going to be something new. It's going to add to what God is already saying to his people, Rich is going to be speaking about the abiding life. There are many things that can distract us. But David said one thing. One thing I ask, one thing I seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon your beauty 
to inquire of the Lord. The abiding life is in Christ. Doesn't matter what else is happening, the one thing is that we look to Him. Nothing else matters. And so, Father, we pray in Jesus' name right now that even as Rich comes up, we thank you, Father, that you have prepared the hearts of your people. Give us ears. Give us hearts that are sensitive to receive that which you want to impart and plant in us, that it might produce fruit, that it might strengthen, that it might encourage. Give us ears to hear what you, Father, are saying by your Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen and Amen. And Rich is a New Yorker. You are a New Yorker, aren't you, Rich? I met Rich briefly this morning and it's his second time here in the UK. He said, um, can we extend grace to him? But we're Ealing people. We'll always extend <laughs> grace to you, Rich. Thank you, Ian. What a gift to be here. I'm on New York time, so it's 4.41 a.m. Uh, and so I've never preached at 4.41 in the morning, uh, at least from my body. But I sense that your, your prayers and the presence of God will uh, sustain me and us. I am grateful to be part of this community. I've been worshiping with you over the past couple of days on YouTube. Thank God for technology. And I have been singing with you and praying with you. And I have been immensely blessed by the preaching ministry at this conference. And uh, Chris, thank you for your gracious invitation to, uh, to be here and to worship with you. I pastor New Life Fellowship Church in Queens, New York City. Uh, it's a church that started 35 years ago by a guy named Pete Scazzaro. And 10 years ago, I became the lead pastor of this a beautiful community, a community where over 75 nations gather as a, uh, you know, to worship together, and a place where National Geographic called the most diverse zip code in the United States, where 123 languages are spoken. And so we get a beautiful taste of the kingdom of God in our midst, the beauty of the kingdom of God in our midst. At the same time, whatever challenges are out in the world, we feel them deeply in our church as well. We have Black Lives Matter protesters and All Lives Matter activists and such. And, and whenever the World Cup comes around, lots of drama in my church. And, and when the Olympics comes around, this church splits and such. But, uh, uh, but we have tasted something of the kingdom of God, and we've had to learn about what it means to abide with one another. And what I have come to understand over the course of my journey following Jesus is that to abide with God and to abide with one another requires us to have moments of encounter and a life of formation. We need moments of encounter of the Holy Spirit, uh, in, encountering us in ways that just in a moment shifts us and shapes us. And then we need a lifestyle of formation where we open ourselves up to Jesus and the presence of God. And that's essentially what I want to talk about. What does it mean to abide with God? 
to have encounters with God, but to have a life of formation with God. And when I think about my own journey as a follower of Jesus, my life was shaped by encounter and has been sustained by formation. I became a Christian uh, as a 19-year-old, but I did not grow up in the church. Uh, I grew up in a home that was quite indifferent towards the things of Christian faith. I grew up in a neighborhood in Brooklyn, and my parents would never go to church, but they would send me to church as a five-year-old, as a six-year-old. And they would send me with my grandparents to this small Latino Pentecostal church in Brooklyn. And when I used to go to this church, I used to think that my parents were really invested in my spiritual life. But it turns out because it's a Pentecostal church, they had three and four hour services. That's good childcare. <laughs> Get a lot done in three hours. You catch a movie, grocery shopping, date night, whatever it was. My parents said, go to that church. That's the church, not the Catholic church. We want you to go to that church. And so I would go to that church with my grandparents, and I grew up believing, first of all, that Jesus was Puerto Rican. That was just my understanding when I grew up. They called him Jesus, todo lo puedo en Cristo que me fortalece. They said everything in you know, Spanish. I thought Jesus was Puerto Rican, and, and I still think to this day there's a little Puerto Rican in him. And, <laughs> and so I would go to this church, and my parents would visit once a year, uh, during Christmas or during Easter time, and, and that would be it. By the time I was 12 years old, I told my parents, I'm really not getting anything out of it. Can I stop going to that church? And they said, sure, you don't have to go to that church any longer. And it was like I was saved in that moment, <laughs> saved from the church. I don't have to go to church anymore. But I found myself back in the church at 17 years of age. And the reason I found myself back in the church was because I started dating a pastor's daughter. And that gets you back in the church very quickly. Somebody say amen. It was a pastor of an Assemblies of God church in Queens, New York City. And he said, Rich, the only way you can date my daughter is if you come to church. I said, I'm there, pastor. I'll, I'll be there. He didn't say what time I had to be there. So I would come at the end of the service and I would kind of sneak in the back. And, and at the end of the service, every single week, he'd say, Rich, what do you think about the sermon? I said, it's fantastic. Now, I'm not a Christian at this point here, but I knew how to answer the question. What was it about, he asked? Jesus. <laughs> Heaven. It was an assemblies of God. Lots of sin. Sin. You know? The Holy Spirit. I asked every week. I said the same exact thing. And I would be a part of this church for about three years. The relationship came to an end, and I remember uh, my heart being broken as a 19-year-old. Walking from one day from Brooklyn, uh, from Queens to Brooklyn to where my uh, family lived. And this relationship came to an end, and I was so distraught, filled with deep anxiety. And I remember walking home and seeing my parents alone. I'm the eldest of five, and my youngest five, four siblings were at that church that I used to go to as a kid. Somehow an evangelist was in town. And my parents said, there's good childcare over there. And so they sent the four of them to that church. And I said, hey, where's Jason? Where's Melissa? Where's Michelle? Where's Laura? They said, they're at this church, Arca de Salvación, Ark of Salvation, down the block. And so I walked down the block looking for someone just to pray for me. I was very depressed. Maybe someone could pray for me. And when I walked into this church, they were in revival. 
a church that typically had about 25, 30 people in the congregation. There were about 100 people in that congregation. And when I walked in, they were singing about the power of Jesus that has so much power that demons would have to flee. And so when I walked in, they're at this point in the song where they're saying, demons have to go. And I'm thinking, I walk in right at that point. I, I hope they're not talking about me. I just, I just walked in. Am I welcome here? And as I walked in, they start singing this song, and I sit towards the back of this small, narrow church in Brooklyn. About 15 minutes later, my parents walk into the church. My parents never went to church, ever. And what made it strange was the way they came to church that day. My father walked in with my mother, and my father had on sneakers and no socks and pajama pants and a tank top and a New York Mets jacket and a New York Mets hat, and, and it was very strange to see him walk in the church that way. My mother came in with him, and I would say, Dad, when you came into church, why did you come dressed like that? And he said, the strangest thing happened. When you left the house to go to this church, I don't know if it was an audible voice or inaudible voice, but I heard two words. And the two words were follow him. And he said, I don't know if that meant follow Rich or follow Jesus, but because Rich was going to church to see Jesus, I just put two and two together and I said, I'll follow you. And he followed me into the church and sat in the back with my mother. And this preacher got up, this Puerto Rican preacher got up with alligator shoes and matching alligator belt. He had it going on. <laughs> and he preached and danced up and down the aisle and preached out of the book of Ezekiel 37 and looked out at the congregation and said, some of you are a valley of dry bones, that your life has been fragmented and you're desolate and you're dry, but God wants to breathe life into you. And he looked out into this congregation and said, do you want the breath of God? Do you want the life of God? Do you want to be put back together? And towards the end of this sermon, this, this flashy alligator shoes wearing preacher gave an invitation. Who wants to receive the breath of God? And one by one, family members began to respond. My brother responded and sister responded and other sister responded and other sister responded and I responded and my mother responded and my father responded and an uncle responded and an aunt responded and a cousin responded and another cousin responded, another uncle responded, another aunt responded, another cousin responded. 15 of us uh, one night receiving the breath of God. Power of God was moving so much in that space. I, I thought, listen, if my dog was there, my dog would have said, can I, can I get the breath of God too? And he was a bad dog. His name was Milo. He was a chihuahua awful dog, demon-possessed dog. He, he needed salvation. And we're weeping at the altar. We've never encountered that level of emotional expression like that. Very awkward when we got home. No one's making eye contact. Everybody's just... What was that? I don't know. I don't, let's not talk about it. Let's not talk about it. And he said, what do we do next? And we said, I guess we should go back the following week. Let's go back the following week. And we went the following week and the following week and the following week. And, and God met us. 
There were entire households within my neighborhood that were being rescued by Jesus Christ. And I believe God wants to do the same thing again. After becoming a follower of Jesus, I would meet with my grandfather who would disciple me. My grandfather began to teach me. He said, you've had a life of encounter. Jesus Christ has encountered you. But this has to be sustained now. You can't live off encounters. You have to learn how to abide. And he began to teach me about the scriptures and what it means to abide. And I want to hang some of my thoughts on John 15 to talk about some of the things my grandfather would hand down to me and the ways that I've tried to abide with Jesus and what I believe the Holy Spirit would invite us into as we seek him today. John 15, verse number five, hear the word of the Lord. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me, my, my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, hear these words, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this, so that your joy may be complete, and that, your, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Holy Spirit, breathe on us. Encounter us with your presence. Give us fresh revelation. Eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to receive every gift you have for us this day. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. When we pick up in our text, Jesus is giving final words to his disciples before he goes to the cross. And what we find in these words here is Jesus essentially narrowing down his three years of ministry. For three years, Jesus has preached about the kingdom of God. For three years, Jesus has healed blind eyes. For three years, Jesus has preached the good news of the gospel. For three years, Jesus has shown his disciples and the world around him what happens when the kingdom of God breaks through. And now Jesus is about to summarize his entire three years of ministry in one word. He's preached many sermons, many parables, given demonstrations of the Holy Spirit, but now he's about to summarize everything he said in one word. And the one word that Jesus summarizes everything with is the word abide, remain. We cannot live the Christian life until we learn how to abide. That we cannot experience what God has for us as daughters and sons of the living God unless we learn how to abide. That we cannot do anything unless we learn how to abide. 
Now, this word abide is, is the word meno, and it comes up not five times in the Gospel of John, not 10, not 15, not 20, not 30, not 40, not 50, not 60. 63 times in the Gospel of John, the word abide, remain, meno comes up. And the range of meaning is quite beautiful. What Jesus is saying, and abide in me and remain in me, he's saying this word means to dwell, to abide, to remain, to, to continue to be present, to continue in relationship, to tolerate, to endure, to wait, to accept, to suffer for, to submit to, to act in accord with, to be faithful to. Let me ask you, do these words describe your life with God? Do these words describe the lives of the people that we are leading and discipling in the name of Jesus? Jesus invites us to abide, to remain, to stay. When I think about this word abide, this word meno, I think about something that I do every single morning. Every morning, I make my wife a cup of tea. You guys know about tea? <laughs> Every morning I make my wife a cup of tea. Now, I've given this metaphor in different places, never in the UK. And so hopefully it lands here. But at least in the United States, there are at least two ways of making tea. We're going to get really deep here. Two ways. Maybe you guys do it differently here, but there's over, in the United there's two ways of making tea, and, and, and it helps to understand what Jesus is getting at with the word meno. The, the first type of tea maker and tea drinker is, is what I call the dipper, where they take the tea bag and they dip in and they dip out, and they dip in and they dip out, and when the tea is to their liking, uh, if they want to get very sophisticated with it, they wrap the tea bag around the spoon, they press down, they discard, and they enjoy their cup of tea, their dippers. And when I think about dipper, I think sometimes our spiritual lives were different. We, we dip in prayer, we dip out of prayer. We dip into church, we dip out of church. We, we, we're, we're dippers. I, I confess, I'm a coffee drinker, but when I drink tea, I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a dipper. Pray for me. I, I'm, I'm a dipper. But there's another way of, of making tea. We're getting deep here. It is, is to be a dweller. To, to, just, to, just, to just let it to let it sit there, and, and, and as, as the tea bag just sits there, there's transformation that happens right before your eyes without any of effort of your own. When, when you're dipping in, and that's a lot of work. I mean, working on the shoulder here, but, 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 but when you just let it dwell, transformation begins to happen all by itself. I remember having a meeting with someone in a local diner in Queens, and I saw him dipping in and dipping out and dipping in and dipping out. And I said, hey, why don't you just let it dwell there? Why don't you just let it sit there? And when he he, what he said to me in that moment, I thought, Holy Spirit. He said, if, if, if I just let it sit there, the tea gets too strong. And in the middle of the diner, I said, my God, my God, that's... And he said, what happened? Is everything right? No, no, the Holy Spirit is speaking right now, brother. The Holy Spirit is speaking because when you just let it sit there, the, the presence of God can sometimes get too strong, sometimes begins to overwhelm. You find yourself doing stuff in God's strength that you could not do on your own. You find yourself forgiving people that you used to be resentful against. 
You find yourself generous when you used to be stingy. You find yourself bold when you used to be afraid. There's something that happens when you dwell, when you menow, when you remain. Jesus is saying the only life that can do something is one that dwells in me, one that remains in me, one that abides in me. And so Jesus says, remain in me, abide in me. And one of the most important ways that we live into this reality is by cultivating a contemplative life, a life of being with God. The contemplative life is, is a life of slowing down to be with Jesus. That's the essence of the contemplative life, the essence of an abiding life, the essence of a life that mentals with God, slowing down my life to be with Jesus. And what the world desperately needs and what the church desperately needs are women and men who have been with Jesus. I think about the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, we see the Holy Spirit moving at the church and, and, and the, the, the courage, the boldness, the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, there's people looking at the disciples and it says these words, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that these men were unschooled, ordinary men. And they were astonished, hear the word, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. The question for our leadership, the question for our life with God is, who have you been with? Who have you been with? It's easier in our day to say, these people have been with cable news personalities. These people have been with strategists, and I love strategists. These people have been with this. The question is, have you been with Jesus? Have you abided in him? Have you, are you menowing in him? Because it is in this unhurried presence of God that we are changed. And one of the greatest gifts that we offer the world, the greatest gift that we offer those that God has entrusted us to lead, is simply being with Jesus. The greatest gift is our ongoing transformation as we abide in Jesus Christ. That we give out of what we have received. When I think about this, I think about something Thomas Aquinas said. Thomas Aquinas, the great theologian, he gives what I believe is the best definition of preaching. Aquinas says his definition of preaching is essentially this. Contemplating and sharing the fruit of contemplation. That's it. Contemplating and sharing the fruit of contemplation. And the image is essentially as this. The image is of Aquinas contemplating the beauty of God in prayer, in silence, in reflection, in meditation. And preaching becomes the moment, brothers and sisters, where we move from contemplating God to sharing the fruit of one's contemplation, where we look at the congregation before us and say, would you like some of that? It's very easy to exegete and share the fruit of one's exegesis, to theologize and to share the fruit of one's theology. And you're not going to find someone who loves exegesis and theology more than I do. 
But preaching, the, the preaching that we need, the ministry that we need is one that abides with God, contemplates God, and shares the fruit of our contemplation. To be in God for the sake of the world. There was a man named Robert Mulholland, a, a man who wrote about spiritual formation, a friend of mine who said, there's two ways of being in the world. We can be in the world for God, or we can be in God for the world. And there's a big difference there. Because to be in the world for God, you don't need God. You can do all that in your own strength. But what we're invited to is to be in God for the sake of the world. To live a life of beholding, Ian said it, beholding the beauty of the Lord. And what God invites us to is a life of mentoring, a life of abiding, a life that says one thing. When I began to get discipled by my grandfather, my grandfather had me memorize entire psalms. He said, if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to have the scriptures just absorbed in your being. And he began to give me assignments to memorize not just Jesus wept, <laughs> but entire psalms. And he would give me homework and say, when you've memorized it, come back and recite it before me. And the first psalm that he had me memorize was Psalm 27. And it's a psalm that gets to the heart of what this generation needs. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even my enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though a host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war shall rise against me, in this will I be confident. One thing, somebody say one thing. One thing have I desired of the Lord. And that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple for in time of trouble. He shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me up upon a rock and now my head shall be lifted above my enemies round about me. Therefore shall I offer praises in his tabernacle of joy. I will sing. Yea, I will sing praises to the Lord. Notice what David says, one thing. I just want one thing. I don't want a big church. I want one thing. I, I don't need a successful man. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. Dwell, 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 dwell. You see, a life of abiding with God is a life that moves beyond transactionalism into communion. It's very easy to have a life with God that's marked by transactionalism and to disciple our people in the way of transactionalism. I say particular prayers and God does particular things. And there's the, I do this and God does that. And I praise God that God hears our cries and I praise God that God hears our prayers and I praise God that the Holy Spirit moves in great ways. But to have a life with God is to move beyond transactionalism to a life of abiding with him to a life of just being with him. I think about the words of Mother Teresa when someone was asking Mother Teresa about her prayer life. They said, Mother Teresa, when you pray, what do you say to God? And she says, I say nothing, I listen. 
And the person who was interviewing her was just so fascinated by that and said, the next question, what does God say when you pray? And she said, nothing, God listens. <laughs> and the guy was so confused. And she said, there's no other way that I can explain prayer to you of listening to God listen, of being with God, being in his presence, whether I feel it or not, whether I can manufacture good feelings or not, I just want to be with God. What we're invited to, a life of abiding is a life that moves beyond the manipulation and the manufacturing of good feelings. Which is why the author, Brendan Manning, asked a very important question. He said, do we worship God or do we worship our experience of God? And there's a very, very big difference here. Because what happens after we leave this summit and we get back home, you'll probably have the afterglow of a couple of days. And you go, wasn't that wonderful? Wasn't that brilliant? This was fantastic. And three days later... You're back to the regular routine of things. An encounter can shape you, but it is formation that sustains you. And what we're invited into is to a life of abiding with God. And so notice, when Jesus is looking at his disciples, he's saying, I want you to abide in me, but I want you to see something. It's not just that Jesus wants his people to abide with him. We are to abide with Jesus so that we learn how to abide with one another. And that's where Jesus takes us next. He looks at his disciples and says, I want you to abide with me as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Live in that reality. And now I want you to love one another as I have loved you. Now, here's the thing. Have you seen these disciples? Have you seen this lot of people that are just very different from one another? When Jesus gathered these disciples, he doesn't gather them based on shared interests. She doesn't gather them based on shared affinity. He doesn't gather them based on who they vote for. He doesn't gather them based on personality type, Enneagram. He doesn't gather them based on any of that. He gathers people that are so vastly different from one another and says, we're going to learn how to do life in the kingdom of God. And when you look at his disciples, you see how very different these two guys are. And I just want to look at two guys, one guy named Matthew, another guy named Simon. Look how vastly different they are. And Jesus says, I want to demonstrate what I can do in my kingdom with people who are vastly different. Matthew was a tax collector. Simon was a tax protester. Matthew collected revenue from the Romans. Simon was a rebel against the Romans. Matthew was wealthy. Simon was a commoner. Matthew lived to make his money by overcharging people like Simon, and Simon lived to kill people like Matthew. And Jesus said, we're all in a small group together now. Where This is one small group. You thought your small group was bad. It is a, we're in a small group now. And what we find when Jesus is doing this is he's saying, I want to demonstrate to the world what's possible. When people submit to my authority, I want to show you what unity and reconciliation can look like in my name. 
Which is why we need a whole new definition of the gospel, that the gospel is not simply about a soteriological transaction. The gospel is more than just something that happens after we die. The gospel is about God creating a whole new family. That the gospel is the good news that the kingdom of God has come near in Jesus Christ. And that in his life, death, resurrection, and enthronement, the powers of sin and death no longer have the last word. And that a new family is established in his name. The fruit of the gospel is a new family. And what we find here in Jesus is that he invites us to show what's possible in his name. You see, a good measure of discipleship is not how much Bible I have in my heart. It's not how many experiences I've had with God. A good measure of discipleship is my, the state of my heart towards people who are different from me. Jesus says love. Now notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say tolerate one another. That's pretty easy. That's a pretty low bar. Jesus doesn't say tolerate. And when you think about the word tolerate, I, I mean, it's, it's not really a positive thing if you give it some reflection. I mean, to, tell you, to, to put up with. It's not romantic, I'll tell you that. Imagine I go to my wife, honey, I just, got, can I tell you something, babe? Can you come over here? I just, I just want to let you know, I tolerate you. It's just... <laughs> that's not going to fly in New York. I just... I go to my seven-year-old son, Nathan, come here. I get him on knee. I just, I just want to let you know, son, I, I know I, I tolerate you. I, I just, I really do. I tolerate you. No, and we've looked at each other with that kind of, I tolerate you. But Jesus says, I want you to move beyond just tolerating. How do we begin to love well? Love wholly. What we're invited to is a life of, of remaining with one another. What I believe we need in this moment is what family systems theorists call differentiation. And differentiation, my definition of differentiation is remaining close to God while remaining close to others, while remaining close to myself in times of high anxiety. And resisting the polar opposite pull of cutting people off or fusing into them. All of us have a tendency to either be on one end of the spectrum or the other, to cut off from people or to fuse into them. And what we are invited into is a life that remains close. Not fused, but close. And what our world needs now are people who know how to abide, to hold space with one another. Amidst our difficulties theologically and differences politically and socially, how do we remain close to one another? When I think about remaining close to one another, I think about my marriage and what I've learned over the years of remaining close, of entering into the space of another. I remember when my wife and I were doing premarital counseling, uh, we, we went to a church and there were other couples that were just so happy to be there and engaged and everything. And, and, and the person got up and said, uh, it's going to take you all, this is how they started their, their seminar, it's going to take you at least 10 years to start learning how to be married. I said, this is awful. This is awful. And I looked at my wife and said, honey, we'll do it in two. Give me a fist bump right there. We just made 16 years, and we're just getting started trying to figure out 
this whole thing. And what I've had to discover is how to be present, how to abide with my wife. Now, whenever there's tension in our relationship, whenever the emotions are high, I'd have four modes that I go into, four modes that I go into that keep me from abiding with my wife. Whenever she's angry, whenever she's sad or something like that, the first mode that I go into is the computer mode where I just love to just give out options that she can do. Honey, you know, option A, you can do this, and you can do this here, and you can do this here. This doesn't work. I just want to let you know, whatever I'm going to say here doesn't work. Take good notes. This doesn't work. <laughs> My second mode that I go into when anxiety's in the system and she's angry or she's sad is, is, the, is the minimizing. Is it that bad, honey? Is, is it that bad? This doesn't work either. I want to let you know. You, you're really getting uptight here. Is it, is, this, is it that bad here? It doesn't work. The third mode I go into is, is superimposing. If that was me, this is how I would respond. This doesn't work either. The fourth mode I get is get out of there mode. I'll be back. I'll just be back. I'll, just, I'll be back in three hours, you know. And I'm out. And so I go see a therapist in that order. I go see a therapist and I say, Doc, I need help. I need help. I, whenever my wife is angry, whenever she's sad, I just don't know how to hold space with her. I don't know how to abide with her. I just don't know how to be with her. And he said, Rich, there's just one simple thing I need you to do. The next time your wife gets uh, angry or sad, I want you to do one thing. I take out my legal pad. I said, what do we got? And I have my pen. He said, one thing I want you to do. And I said, I'm listening. He said, the next time your wife is angry, I want you to be angry with her. I said, what else you got? Uh, that's not going to work. What else you got? He said, that's it. The next time your wife is sad, I want you to be sad with her. I said, I don't think this is going to work. He, he said, now, this doesn't work if she's angry with you. I just want to let you know, this doesn't work if she's angry with you. There's nothing I can do if she's angry with me at that point. And so I said, angry with her, okay, sad with her, okay. He said, but you're going to have to tap into your own anger and tap into your own sadness in order to be present with her. And so he gave me the assignment, and so I started trying to tap into my anger and tap into my sadness. And I remember a few weeks later, she was angry about something, not really angry, more perturbed about something. And as I see her just at the other side of the apartment getting angry and, and all that, I thought, this is my moment. <laughs> this is my moment to enter in. I feel the presence of God. This is, this is my moment. <laughs> now, my initial, you know, I, I'm thinking I got to give a computer. I got to give her some money. I can't do that. And I got I can't better not minimize. I can't superimpose. I better not run out of here. She wants me. He said, be angry with her. And so I'm talking to myself, be angry with her. And I start walking over to her and start asking her a couple of questions. And she, again, she's not really, it's not a big thing. She's perturbed, but, but I'm thinking, be angry with her. Be, and in a very disproportionate kind of a way. Mid-sentence, I just totally interject and interrupt and say, she said what? How dare she talk to you like that? Who does she think she is? And my wife would go, honey, calm down. No, calm down, no, calm down. I don't wanna calm down. We're gonna fix this right now. Have some more, I'm kicking stuff. I'm slapping the water out of the hand. And do you know what she felt at that moment? Love. 
<laughs> Come on, women, testify in this place here. You didn't think you were going to get marriage counseling here. This is pretty good, huh? To abide is to incarnate, to step into the shoes, the experiences, to feel what they feel. And what the world needs now is love, sweet love. Abiding. This is why when I pray, much of my time in prayer is very simply sitting in the presence of God and not doing anything but being with God. And I believe when I'm simply being with God in this way, that the Holy Spirit is training my soul to be present with others, that moves beyond good feelings. When I sit with God for 10, 15, 20 minutes in just stillness and in silence, I'm saying my life is more than just good feelings. And praise God, the Holy Spirit has a way of surprising me with good feelings. But I'm not there for the good feelings. I'm there for God. And as I give myself to God in this way, my soul is trained to be still and to abide with others. Jesus is essentially saying to love one another requires us to abide. And what we need and what the church needs one with another and what the world needs to be modeled and demonstrated are people who know how to dwell with one another. But this requires us to do the deep work of introspection. And I want to end with this here. It's not just abiding with God and abiding with one another. The, the abiding life is also about remaining close to ourselves in the presence of God. Taking note of ourselves in the presence of God. When the pandemic hit in 2020, I want to be honest, I did not feel too much anxiety the first number of months. I didn't. I was lots of adrenaline. We were times for innovation, creativity. We have to do this. We have to do that. But anxiety started hitting my system after January 6th. And in the United States, that was the day where there was the insurrection at the Capitol. Have you heard about that? <laughs> and I remember that Sunday, uh, it, that happened on a Wednesday. And as I'm, I had already had a sermon prepared for that Sunday, and I'm looking at what's happening on Wednesday, I'm thinking, this can't be good. By Thursday, I'm thinking, I think I need to adjust my sermon for this coming Sunday, which I just want to say just... Uh, pastorally, I, I just wish that the Lord would allow all kinds of craziness to happen on Monday. I just, 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 just give me time to prepare, Lord. Can I just get time to prepare? Uh, you know, let's call it Monday madness or something like that. And it just gives me a few days to prepare my sermon. And so here I am on Thursday thinking, I think I need to change my sermon, realizing that on that Sunday, providentially, serendipitously, however you want to say it, that that was the Sunday that we were focusing on the baptism of Jesus. And so I thought, I'm going to preach about what it means to be baptized. That to be baptized means that we belong to Jesus Christ. That our alliance is to Jesus Christ. 
and to his kingdom. And so I got up and preached about our allegiances to Jesus Christ and, and, and that we have to move beyond cable news discipleship and we have to move beyond corrosive racism and we have to move beyond conspiracy theories and we have to move beyond all the things that started with the letter C. That's what I did there. And, 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 and so I preached there and started getting lots of emails from people who were not happy with some of the things I was saying, that our allegiance is to Jesus Christ and to no one else. And people started asking to, can we have a Zoom meeting, Pastor Rich? Uh, can we have a two-hour Zoom meeting? Can anything good come out of a two-hour Zoom? I don't, I, I don't. Can we make it 90 minutes? Is that possible? Is that, can we have a hard stop at 90 and, and, and one after the other? Can we meet? Can we meet? Can we meet? And I started getting anxiety deep anxiety in my system because they were not just random people. They were people who were deeply committed to our church who were just having a hard time. And I realized that there was deep anxiety in my system as all these people wanted to meet with me. I found myself having trouble catching a satisfying breath. And when anxiety hits my life, it often hits in that way first, which is why at New Life we say that the body is a major prophet, not a minor prophet. The body speaks loud and knows ahead of time what's happening before our minds and our souls and our spirits can catch up. Our body is a major prophet. And so I began to take inventory of what was happening, trying to figure out, Lord, why am I, why am I carrying this level of anxiety? Why can't I sleep at night? And the Lord was saying, I want you to abide with yourself in my presence. And I remember one day I had a conversation with someone for 90 minutes, and I was feeling deeply anxious, losing nights of sleep. And I decided to take a walk in my neighborhood, sat at a bench, and said, Lord, I just need you to reveal what's happening in my soul. I can't live like this. And I said, what are the lies I'm believing? What are the messages that are deep in my soul that just keep moving me towards reactivity and not presence, towards anxiety and not abiding. Lord, what are the messages? And I sat down and it, the Holy Spirit began to reveal lie after lie that I was believing. And I wanna share with you those lies that I was believing. And I wonder if there might be some application for your own leadership as you step into the next season of ministry. These were about six messages I was carrying inside of me, messages that went like this. When people disagree with me, it means I'm a bad leader. That if congregants and I are not on the same page, I'm doing something wrong as a leader. That I'm causing division by bringing up delicate issues. That things will end in the worst way possible, and it will be my fault. Messages like, I need you to like me for me to be okay. I need you to agree with me for me to be okay. And that people who leave our church expose my deficiencies in leadership. And I sat there in that bench in Queens going, Holy Spirit, identify these lies that I'm believing, these stories that are shaping the way I'm showing up in the world. And did everything fix itself in that moment? No. Was I still somewhat anxious having all of these conversations? Yes. But something shifted in my soul. That as I gave time to being with myself in the presence of God, 
and allowing the Holy Spirit to reveal the stories and lies and unbelieving, something shifted. Here's the question. What are the messages you've been believing? What are the lies that are deep in your soul? What are the stories that you are telling yourself? And it is only until we allow ourselves to be with ourselves in the presence of God that we can begin to get a new narrative, a new set of scripts, a new story, a new anointing, a new grace to live in this moment. What's staggering about what Jesus says here is he invites us to a life of abiding with him, remaining in him. But here's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is not just that God invites us to abide with him. All of our abiding with God is a direct response to God's longing to abide with us. It was the theologian Karl Barth who said, God does not wish to be God without us. God does not wish to be God without us. God is always longing for a people to dwell with. A people where he can, where their praises inhabit his presence. A, a people to walk with. From Genesis to Revelation, we see that God longs to be with the people. He can't get enough of you. He can't get enough of us. With all of our sin and all of our uh, mishaps and all of our addictions and all of our idolatry and all the ways that we've gone this way and that, God continues to pursue us. God continues to come after us. And not just us in a generic, ambiguous kind of a way, in a very intimate, personal kind of a way. God does not wish to be God without you. And to abide with God is a response to God's gracious initiative to abide with us. The greatest gift you can give to the people you lead, to the people that you are in relationship with, is a life of abiding, of being with. A life that we give out of what we've received, which is why in Acts chapter three, when James and John are by the gate called beautiful, and a lame man is looking for some money, they look at him in his eyes and said, silver and gold, I don't have. But what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. The question is, what do you have? Have you been with God? Are you abiding in God? Are you remaining in God? And here's the gracious invitation. God longs to abide and dwell with you. Far beyond this summit, far beyond this gathering, in the ordinary moments of our day, may the Holy Spirit awaken our souls to simply be with God so that we can be with others and ourselves and show the world what's possible when Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning in our lives. Amen. Let's pray together. Let me invite you to stand. The Lord has been trying to get your attention over these last few days. And what I hear the Holy Spirit saying is, I, I want to encounter you. I, I want to fill you. I want overflow. I want fresh baptisms. I want to meet you here. But I just don't want to meet you here. I want to meet you in your living room, in your study, in your car, 
in your bedroom, in the grocery store, in the workplace, wherever you go. When there's no one else around you, I want to meet you. When you don't feel anything, I want to meet you. When you're not feeling anything on my prayer, I still want to meet you. And that's what's going to sustain this movement. That's what's going to sustain this mission. That after the encounters and the good feelings have long gone, we're still here. Abiding in the presence of God. One thing have I desired, and that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your gracious love, the ways that you meet us, the ways that you encounter us, the ways that you pour out grace on our lives. And may we reciprocate that. May we give you our presence, not just here, but in the days to come. And would you train us to be a people, train us to be a leadership, train us to create communities that learn how to abide when there is an immense blizzard around us seeking to destroy and to alienate our communities. Fill us with your Holy Spirit as we abide in you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I just want to see it here at